And now if you would turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Psalm 128. We've just sung Psalm 127. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 128, which will provide us uh, a springboard for our New Testament passage, which again, as last week, is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, as we look at uh, the characteristics and the life of the men who keep watch over our souls. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now let's turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who made, manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for shepherding your church. We thank you for the wisdom that you have demonstrated daily in providing your church and its congregations with under-shepherds, men of your choosing. We pray for your blessing upon us as we look to you to provide for our next pastor. We pray that uh, we pray with joy and thanksgiving that you are raising up this church and strengthening it for your glory and to be a witness and a testimony to the grace of our Lord here in San Antonio. Open our eyes now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand more clearly what it is you require of those who shepherd your sheep. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> so, we've begun examining together the biblical qualifications for those who aspire to the office of overseer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Already we have seen that not just any man can hold this office. He's got to be a man transformed and upheld by the powerful grace of God. He's got to be daily sustained by that grace. A man so divinely upheld and sustained becomes, through time and experience, a man victorious in Christ, a man above reproach. This is absolutely top drawer essential, as we saw last time. Today we come to the qualification that ranks second in Paul's list given both to Timothy here in chapter 3 and to Titus in chapter 1 of the letter to Titus. An overseer, according to the Holy Spirit, must be the husband of one wife. And I should emphasize here at the beginning that these qualifications incorporate and build upon our biblical doctrine of manhood. But they impose conditions that, in some respects, exceed it. The law of averages, for instance, tells us that not every man who might consider seeking the office of elder is above reproach. Not even every Christian man. The average Christian man is, among Christians, about average. And don't be mistaken, God certainly uses the average Christian man. Thanks be to God that he does, and thanks be to God furthermore, that through time and experience, the average Christian man upheld and sustained by the grace of God may grow into a man above reproach. But the biblical standard for elders exceeds that of the average Christian man. If we take Paul at his word, we have to say that this applies to his home life as well. It's a step beyond. Because many Christian men get on very well without a wife. Our own Reformed Presbyterian testimony denies that marriage is a more spiritual state than single life, or that it is necessary for eternal salvation. What this means is that not all good Christians are married Christians. There is nothing sacramental about the institution of marriage. Single men and single women, perfectly happy to remain so, these dear people fulfill vital roles in the life of Christ's church. So in no way should we ever think of a church's singles as second-class citizens or not quite there yet 
or not quite complete in Christ because they are complete in Christ. They are. They're living out their own particular gift and calling as singles. Paul had a lot to say about this to the Corinthians in the seventh chapter of his first letter. He said, now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he goes on to say, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. And whatever the circumstances may have been behind it, whether Paul was never married or widowed or divorced, Paul the Apostle was at the time single, which underlies the truth of yet another statement of our Reformed Presbyterian testimony. We deny that marriage is necessary for officers in the church. It certainly wasn't necessary for the New Testament office of apostle. It wasn't necessary for the New Testament office of prophet. It wasn't necessary for the New Testament office of evangelist. But as for the continuing office of pastor-teacher, which is to say the overseer or elder, it seems pretty clear an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now I have four points, four brief points to make this morning. The first two actually are mathematical formulas, terribly complex ones, as you will soon see. And then the last two offer some explanation of the wisdom behind the requirement that the elder be the husband of one wife. My first point then is this. One does not equal two or more. That's my first point. One does not equal two or more. The overseer of Christ's church is the husband of precisely one wife, Mias. Gunaikos, it is in the original. Mias, one. Gunaikos, wife. Paul's very specific here. Not Lamech's two wives. Not Jacob's four. Not Solomon's 700. One wife. And the reasons for this limitation to one wife each aren't all that hard to see, are they? Just search the scriptures. Consider the glimpses, the various glimpses that the Bible gives us into the home lives of the Old Testament patriarchs and kings. Despite their barrenness, Abraham and Sarah seem to have enjoyed a reasonably happy, well-ordered home life until that business with Hagar. That changed everything. 
And Jacob in his day, upon seeing Rachel, wanted only one woman in his life. And by his brother-in-law Laban's deceit, ended up with four. In the days of the judges, Elkanah, good and righteous man that he was, Elkanah took two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, and then spent what must have seemed to him long years of his life playing referee between them. Why this turmoil in every case? Why all this bitterness? Why all this resentment in the home? It's competition. Competition for children and competition for the heart of this man that they've both married. Think about it. Does the Bible offer us even one example of a serene, well-ordered home in which a man lives with two or more wives simultaneously? I don't think it does. I can't find any. Whenever the subject of marriage came up in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, he regularly took his hearers way back beyond what had over the intervening centuries become customary. He always took us back to the beginning. How was it in the beginning? In the beginning, back when everything had been created by God and was on that account, very good. It suddenly occurred and appeared that not everything was as good as it might be. Because the man, as he went about exercising godly dominion over God's earth, the man needed a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him, a helper designed to be bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And in his consummate wisdom, God took one of his ribs and fashioned it into a woman. God didn't take his rib cage. God didn't take one or two or three ribs. He took one only. And one does not equal two or more. That much is clear. But my second point, for some reason, seems to be more open to debate, even in Reformed circles. It is this. One does not equal zero. I can recall some years ago hearing a very well-respected preacher on the radio preaching in a very broad, comprehensive way against the ministries of divorced men in the pulpits of the church, who then completely passed over this very important point. Essentially, what he said was, of course, if a man's never been married, he might very well serve as a pastor. But dear ones, according to what we have here, God thinks it vital that a man discharging the responsibilities of an elder, whether ruling or teaching, that he be the husband of one wife. And one does not equal zero. 
Now, given the presence of single men in so many Reformed pastorates, we need, thirdly, to answer the question, the important question, why exactly one wife for the overseer of Christ's church? Why should he be married? And off the top of my head, I can think of at least five reasons. The first reasons illustrated in the ongoing turmoil of a sister denomination to our own. It has to do with morality. Morality. The questions being debated in that denomination, whether a man who is dealing with same-sex attraction might lawfully serve as pastor of a church, as long as he doesn't outwardly act on his inner inclination. And you can easily imagine how divisive such an issue might be in a denomination that, in the main, holds to the historic Reformed faith and life. If one were somehow made to equal zero, it's very hard to imagine where such thinking might take us in matters of morality. Going back to Paul's guidance to the Corinthians, he says, But because of immoralities... Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband, cleaving to the scriptures, governing ourselves by the careful reading and consideration of what we find here, that would prevent so much needless wrangling and so much immorality in the Lord's church. So that's a first reason, but what else is there? What other purposes does a good wife serve in the home of her husband, the elder? Buckle your seatbelts, because there's a lot we have to get through here. There are a number of reasons. A good wife is the helper of her husband. And if any man ever needed a helper, it is the overseer of Christ's church. Ecclesiastes 4.9 holds true in their home no less than the average man's home. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor for if either of them falls the one will lift up his companion. The woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore if two lie down together they keep warm but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. So, a good wife helps her husband in his godly exercise of dominion in God's world and his service in the church. They simply watch out for one another. They watch out for one another. They protect one another. They defend one another against the particular perils that assail a pastor's life and ministry. Hold in so many different directions, their teamwork in Christian ministry holds it all together. In addition to her being a helper to her husband, she's also the heart of her home. She's the heart of her home, and the overseer, as we'll soon see, must be hospitable. He lives in a house 
and being a hospitable man, he opens his house to others. But it's her presence in it that makes that house a home. Furthermore, a good wife in a relationship with her husband is going to be the living image and public representation of the Lord's church. A living image and the public representation of the Lord's church. That's the point of that analogy we find in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 23. She demonstrates to others what the church's relationship is to Christ. And this is an important aspect of her own role and ministry as a member of Christ's body, the church. Because roughly half the church, in most cases, is going to be female, isn't it? Roughly half the church is going to be female. And the elder, being a man, has no real ability to demonstrate to the girls and young women of his church how to be a godly woman. Only a godly woman can do that. Here I think Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 are helpful. Paul writes to Titus, Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. But there's more. A good wife, in addition to all these other things, a good wife is the first indicator to the church of her husband's spiritual leadership. You have heard maybe of the canary in the coal mine. Probably not everybody has. But coal miners, in years gone by, used to take a caged canary down into the mines with them to serve as an indicator of the oxygen that was available down there. When the canary in the cage dropped over, you know it's time to drop whatever it is you're doing and head to the surface, or very soon you'll be dropping over too. A pastor's wife, or an elder's wife, is something like that canary in the coal mine. Is she happy and thriving under the care of her husband? then chances are very good that the church under his care is going to be happy and thriving as well. But watch out for the man whose wife doesn't obviously love, honor, and respect him. That's not the man you want to be your next pastor. So, Today we've seen that one doesn't equal two or more, then that one doesn't equal zero, and we then looked at some of the reasons an elder should be the husband of one wife. One final question remains. 
what sort of a wife should the elder's wife be? Now, some of us might have the knee-jerk reaction that this really isn't any of my business to inquire what sort of a person she is because she's not the one being considered for church office. She's not going to be accountable to me and I'm not going to be accountable to her. What we're after is the husband, the pastor-teacher, the overseer. And I think this perspective has a grain of truth to it. She's not the one who's going to be the church officer. She's not the one who's going to be the elder. But, by virtue of this mysterious oneness of marriage, she is going to have an immense impact on the direction her husband takes in life. She's going to have an immense impact on the direction their whole family and household takes, and that's going to affect the life of the whole congregation as well. Will her husband be our pastor, for instance, for the next three years or the next 30? Will their children, as they grow, make the normal, healthy transition from baptized to communicant member, advancing from strength to strength, or are their children going to grow up sullen, vexed, eventually drifting away from the biblical faith altogether? Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it's typically the wife and mother who casts the deciding ballot. Proverbs 14.1, hide it in your hearts. Make it a part of you. The wise woman builds her house. The foolish tears it down with her own hands. Sadly, there are women who introduce into their own homes and churches more trouble than they solve by being there. Priscilla was obviously a great blessing to her husband, Aquila, and vice versa. It was mutual. They were one in the Lord. Michal, on the other hand, clearly wasn't the wife to her husband, David, that she should have been, could have been, and might have been if she had truly and clearly and completely left the house of her father, Saul. We don't want among us wives or women who gossip and gripe. We don't want among us women who discourage their husbands, wearing them down under the constant dripping of complaints and grievances and snarky remarks. We don't want our pastor's wife to be undermining his good work with the unsolicited opinion that this will never work. You know this will never work. The church is too small to hang on much longer. That We should have gone to that larger church up north, the one that called you there. 
We should have gone there, but no. You wanted to go to San Antonio, where it's sunny all the time and where the people are nice. We don't want among us wives like Rebecca or Delilah who deceive their husbands in any way. And by no means do we ever want to discover among us wives and mothers who by word or example lead their children away from Christ. Away from his kingdom. Away from the church. Even away from their own Christian dads. Let the elder, whether teaching or ruling, let the elder be the husband of one wife. What sort of wife? What sort of woman? We've already seen Paul's description of her in Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. But he condenses it all here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. Here's what we're looking for. Here's the woman who's going to build up her husband in the hand of Christ as he, Christ, builds his church. Let her be a woman dignified, not a malicious gossip, but temperate, faithful in all things. What was said of her in the Old Testament holds true in the New as well. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Amen.